Brother Matthew and then Brother Nathan, if you two gentlemen would like to lead off. Over the last couple of weeks, I hope you have all availed yourselves of the opportunity in looking at preparation for the Sunday services and at other times to look through the chapters of Isaiah 41 through 48. They are glorious chapters. They contain a lot of the Lord speaking to man and explaining things to them. And I hope all of you have, or at least some of you have, as I have, enjoyed the example of idolatry in those chapters, of seeing that man can be so foolish as to take a piece of wood, a a log, he can cut a piece of it off and cook his food, he can take another piece of it and he can warm himself and he can make the third piece of God and he can worship it. And how very foolish that is. I hope you have with me enjoyed the glory of the Lord telling us that those relics of stone, of silver and of gold, of wood, are nothing. They have no power. They have no being. They can do neither good nor evil nor anything at all. I hope all of you have enjoyed that in some way, of hearing the Lord's pronouncements. And yet at the same time, looking through those chapters and those verses, it occurred to me that while we may mock men who are foolish enough to bow down to a work of their own hands, to make something themselves and worship it, we are no better. Specifically because idolatry is not limited to bowing down to a stone. Idolatry is not limited to saying prayers to Buddha. It's not limited to going to a Shintoist shrine and praying to your dead ancestors. Idolatry is something that, honestly, probably all of us have in our heart on some level. Idolatry is any time when you place anything higher than God. Anything. Your job. Your spouse. Money. Yourself. Your health. Anything. Anything placed higher than God is idolatry. Amen. How can we in good conscience mock those who bow to stone when stone's real? It's physical, it's tangible. When we instead embrace something in our own hearts which is not even tangible. It's just a feeling, a thought. Now, also, idolatry could be considered continuing in a sin that you know is wrong, that you know is in your life. You're holding something that's wrong in your heart. God's told you it's wrong, but you're saying, I just can't let that go. Does that sound somewhat familiar with holding a lie in your right hand? If you continue in sin and you know it's sin, you're committing an act of idolatry. Now, I'm willing to admit, there are probably some of you here who are better than me. Well, there will be those who are better than me. Maybe you don't value anything higher than God. Maybe you don't. I hope that we have some brethren like that, but let me ask, is there anything that even rivals God? Anything that even comes close to God, even if you don't hold it more dear, God should be so much higher than all of those things in your life. Anything. So let me ask you, is there idolatry in your heart? And that's each and every one of us, including me. I'll point out to you that Colossians 3.5 says that covetousness is idolatry. Do you have something that you really want? So much so that it's on your mind pretty frequently. I don't know, maybe it's car. Maybe it's a particular position. Covetousness 
something that God hasn't chosen to give you. You're saying, I don't like that, God. I, I want that thing, and you haven't given it to me, and I want that. That's idolatry. Now, I'm going to give you a specific example. If you'll turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. In the New Testament, there is a term that says that there are men who will have their own bellies as their God. And in Numbers 11, we will see a people who had their own bellies as their God. And I want you to see the results of what happens when you keep to idolatry. Numbers 11, starting at verse 4 through verse 6. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons, and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Now, every single day, except for on the Sabbath, they had food fall from heaven, food from God that was sufficient for them. Looking at the description of it, it's a glorious food. But they didn't even have to work. They had, they had nothing but goodness from God, and they weren't satisfied. They thought with their bellies, and they said, we're not satisfied with what God wants to give us. We want meat. That's idolatry. Now, it's not called as such in the passage, but looking at it, they're valuing something higher than God. Now, God may leave you unsatisfied, but there's something more terrifying than that, and that's for God to let you have what you want. It's for God to let you have your idol. And that's what we find in verses 18 through 20. And God even tells us why. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? It's a terrifying thing when the Lord lets you have your way. It's a terrifying thing when he lets you have that desire that is not of him. And you could be, you could consider yourself blessed, honestly. They should have considered themselves blessed that the Lord's purpose was to make them sick of it. The Lord's purpose wasn't simply to destroy them. He wanted them to understand how vain it was. But as we find in verses 31 through 33, the results of this. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. The Lord decided to show some of his displeasure by killing some. He let them have what they wanted, and he showed them the vanity of it. 
But there's something even worse. There's an account in the Psalms. If you would turn to Psalm 106, it references this account. And it tells us something even more terrifying. I, I find it terrifying, and I, I would hope that you, looking at this, would see the terror of it as well. Psalm 106, verses 14 and 15. This is speaking of the people of Israel. But lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Brethren, there's something worse than being smitten with death by the Lord with a plague for having your way. It's the Lord removing his spirit. It's the Lord removing his blessing from you. This is the cost of idolatry, brethren. And I would venture to say, knowing a tiny bit of human nature from my own black heart, that idolatry is in all of us on some level. And so I'd ask, brethren, if we can see the glory of God, if we can talk about it, if we can praise him for his might, looking through Isaiah 41 through 48, if you can look at all those things and speak as some of us have about the glory of it, How can we not cleanse ourselves? How can we not consider the fact that we have idols in our own hearts? Brethren, we have an opportunity. The Lord's giving you an the Lord's giving you an opportunity because He brought it to me so I could say something. He's giving you an opportunity to think what is taking His place in charge of your life? What is taking His place as your chief desire? Brethren, He could give you your own way. Don't wait. Don't make it necessary for God to prove a point in your life. Cleanse yourselves. Put the Lord first in everything. Put him far first. Don't let anything rival him. Nothing is worth him. Nothing is worth trading for him. So, brethren, I ask, the choice is before you. Are you going to complain in your own hearts? Are you going to hide it there? Or are you going to rip it out, throw it down, stomp on it, and put the Lord first? Amen. This is great, Matthew. Thank you for the time put forth to do that. Part of me opening up for a few minutes this evening was to remind us a little bit about what we heard on Sunday. Somebody else spoke on Sunday morning with some very similar words about covetousness. And letting something else rival God. And my brother Philip talked to us about but godliness with contentment is great gain, not wanting something else. And uh, those two coincided very well together. We heard about singing. We heard some great phrases from Genesis and Romans about Jesus Christ. We heard um, Ephesians 2 mentioned and in, in where our state is and what Jesus Christ did for us to take care of the state that we were in. We heard about being thankful that our names are written in heaven and not that we can cast out demons from Jerry. And we heard a great lesson, a reminder about the torch that's being passed from one generation to another. And we need to keep these things in mind, and that goes very well with what I'd like to speak to you about tonight for a few minutes. If you would turn to the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, we're going to look at a few verses there and a thought that has been with me for the last few months, and some of you that have talked to me have heard this, that as I have young children that are hitting an age of understanding, I'm trying to 
find a simple way to have a good, godly, but simple devotions with them. And not to go too far over their heads, but also not to shortchange God's word. And so this passage stuck out to me, and I hope I can give you a couple of simple lessons from it. The second epistle of Paul to Timothy, we're going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to look at the verses from 13 to the end of the chapter. A little bit about what this chapter looks like. Those first two verses, 13 and 14, show us a, a, a group of people. And in verse 15 and verse 16, it starts to explain a little bit about those people of, of who's in those two groups. And then 17 and 18 actually expound a little bit on the second group. And although it uses an individual for the second group, let's think about it for all of us. And if you need to think about it as an individual for you, so be it. I'm going to read these passages and then I want to point out a couple of things. And then I want to apply it in two ways. And uh, that will be my time here. So follow along with me. For those of you that have your Bibles, second, the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, starting at verse 13 of chapter 1. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus thou knowest very well. This chapter is broken up into sections, if you were to read the whole chapter, but I really like this section. And I want to start with that first verse. We hear a couple of, of commandments from Paul to Timothy, and, and so to us. Hold fast the form of sound words. We've been given many sound words in this church for years and years. Some of them are easy for all of us to understand. Some of them are a little bit more difficult, but we've all been given plenty of sound words. If you haven't got them from this church, all of you that have Bibles have no excuse either. The sound words are not lacking. We've, we, we know that there's good things that we're supposed to keep hold to. That's, a, that's just another reminder of the sound words. And we're commanded to hold them fast and to keep them, as we know from the book of Jude, it tells us the same thing, that we're earnestly to contend for these things. That's holding fast and keeping these things. The two groups that are mentioned here. We've got the first group here in verse 15. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. All that are in Asia. Here's the Apostle Paul, a great apostle, talking to his understudy Timothy, and he actually has to mention that an entire group of people had turned away from him. He'd performed miracles. He had preached his heart out. He had, as he says, done more than all the other apostles. But yet there's an entire group of people that had turned away from him. And two by name. And I want you to remember by name. As we move into the next group, there is obviously a great distinction that there's another man. And let's go with the group here in verse 16. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus. 
For he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Here's a man that was singled out by name for having done something that an entire group of people couldn't do, and two of them particularly. My encouragement to you, and one of the two things I want to leave with you, is could you be singled out by name for anything you've done for the gospel of Christ? Have you done anything for the church? Have you done anything for the pastor? Have you done anything for your families? Have you done anything for anybody else that you would be singled out and there would be a reason for that? Have I done anything else that I would be singled out? I would rather, much rather, I hope, and all of you would rather be singled out in that second group in verse 16 than the first one of who were mentioned. And all the people that read this epistle knew that those first two people must have been very wicked in what they, what they had learned and turned away from. Verse, verses 17 and 18 just explains a little bit more about how great this man Onesiphorus was. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. And going on, the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And I want to stop there. And many of us have thought, what, what's the whole of Christianity? What are we doing this for? Why are we here tonight? Why would we sacrifice a Wednesday night when there's many better things to do? Why would we get up on a Sunday morning and dress our families and come into this building to to worship? Because we know that there is a day coming, and that day is fast approaching. Somebody mentioned earlier, and it leaves me now, that our bodies are quickly decaying. I believe it was Zach. Our bodies are decaying. We're sprinting towards that day. And I know that many of you in talking to you, and I know from myself, I want to be prepared in that day. Well, here's an example of how to get prepared for that day. Be like Onesiphorus. Very diligently do something and do it for the Lord's sake. The second half of 18, a focus for us as individuals, and in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. He was able to use this individual's name and know that everybody that that knew that name knew that he had done this very well. Once again, Is there anything that we could be accounted for by name that we've done very well for the gospel of Christ? Two groups. Which group are we going to be in? We have a choice every day. What are we going to do? What are we laying up for ourselves? Are we laying up for ourselves good things for that day, for that time to come, as another passage reads? Or are we laying up for ourselves something very different, that when the Apostle Paul was in a great hour of need, He lists you with a group of people that says you didn't do anything for him. You turned away with what he'd been giving you. I pray that we all go towards that that better group, that second group with Onesiphorus, that we might be counted worthy in that day. We might lay up for ourselves something, a, a sure foundation. What can we do? What things are out there that we can do? No specifics, but think through the the different circles of life that you're in. We have a church. We have families. We have friends here in the church. We have people in the workplace. We have many other spheres of area where we are definitely in control of how we act around them. And what they see is how you lay up for yourselves those good things. My encouragement to all of us is that we remember these things that we've been taught. We heard a lot on Sunday. We heard about how the truth the Lord's given us and how particularly we should hold on to those things. We heard some great other reminders, again even tonight from Matthew, and I'm sure two more, Let us hold fast to those things and lay up for ourselves a good foundation. Amen. Amen. Brother Eric.
And then Brother Gerald. I've got a couple of volunteers already. I need one more. Is Stephen Eastland, Jr. in the house? Would you please turn to uh, Ezra, chapter 1, and at the appointed hour, read verses 1 through 3 for me. Thank you, sir. All right, we're going we're gonna to try to fly. I have a story to tell you, but I have a verse to start with first. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. We enjoy listening to God boast about his ability to foretell the future. And the pastor made a comment not too long ago that in Isaiah 41 through 50-ish, that if you don't know who the he is that he's talking about, oftentimes he's talking about Cyrus. So I got to thinking about that. I need to go back and find out where Cyrus is mentioned and why and what this Cyrus guy did that was so great. Because if he's mentioned that often, as I found out later, he's mentioned about two dozen times in the Bible by name. I need to find out what he did and why it was important to God to mention that often. So I did some reading. It it ended up being six or eight hours of, of Internet and Bible and stuff, and it ended up being fascinating. I want to share a little bit with you. I start with the story. So I've got to set the background, just like our pastor did with, uh, with, uh, with the other prophecies that he covered. I want to set the background in history, and then I want to go through and read the prophecies about this guy and pick out some verses, many, many of them, and you marvel over the details and the accuracy of them and how well God foretold them many years before. To set the stage, the Medes ruled over the Persians in 6th century B.C., if you usually think of the Persian Empire as being greater, and I'll explain that why in a minute, but the Medes first were over the Persians. A guy by the name of Astyages uh, was the ruler over the Medes, and he was the ruler over the Persians as well, sort of at that point. Uh, he had a daughter, and he ended up having a dream, actually two dreams, when his daughter was born uh, about his daughter, that the wise magicians and the astrologers of the day, the Median wise dudes that supposedly could interpret dreams, said that this daughter would have a son that would overthrow his kingdom. And so he decided that wasn't a good thing, and so his daughter was not going to ever get married. The problem was that she had other plans. And so when she grew up, he finally said, okay, well, you can get married, but you're definitely not getting married to a Mede, because Medes are more important than Persians. If you're going to marry anybody, you're going to marry a Persian, because nobody from a Persian seed could ever beget a king. So we'll let you marry a Persian, and we'll, actually that Persian was already the governor over that, that sort of area of Persia. Back then it was a city-state that he was more in charge of. So you can marry this guy that's a Persian. His, his name was Cambyses I. So uh, he thought that would be safe. When they had a son, then, he ordered him killed immediately. The guy that was supposed to kill the son took him out back and called a shepherd that he happened to know and said, Here, can you get rid of this guy? This baby. The shepherd says, sure. Matter of fact, my baby just had a stillborn last night. My wife, my wife did. I'll swap you. And this is true. You go on Google and read. Okay, so the guy gave him the stillborn baby back, and the guy carried in the palace and said, see, here's your son. He's dead. Fine, no problem. So he, this guy, the son that was born, survived for many years before Astyages knew that he was alive. And this guy's name was Cyrus. That was the baby's name. When Astyages died in 477 B.C., Cyrus succeeded him. I'm sorry, when Cambyses, Cambyses, which was his father. When Cambyses died in 477, 
Cyrus succeeded him as governor. He was age 41 at the time and immediately formed a revolt. You can understand why against his grandfather, Esteves. Uh, after he died, then uh, he quickly united the city-states of the Medes and the Persians and placed his uncle Darius, they, some say he's his father-in-law or his cousin in this conflict, his uncle as Darius as governor over the Medes. This forms the beginning of the united Mede and Persian Empire. And that Persian Empire, since Cyrus was a Persian, eventually was the one that grew uh, to stretch from Israel to Egypt all the way to India, which until Alexander the Great, that was the biggest kingdom the empire, the, the world had ever seen. This was, uh, this was under uh, Cyrus. All this is fulfilled, uh, all this fulfills the vision that uh, recorded in Daniel 8. And at this point, I'll ask Daniel Jones to stand up and read three verses out of Daniel 8 about the Persian Empire. Please, sir. Does that fit? The ram is the Persian, the Median Persian Empire with the two horns. And the one that was higher, i.e. stronger, came up last. And so that fits. That fits very well. In about 470 B.C., Cyrus began his push, emphasis, uh, towards the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar was the king at that point. Actually, he had just died when he began his push. Nebuchadnezzar was the guy that took the Jews captive out of Judah into Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach. Uh, I suppose he was named that because they worshipped a god named Merodach, and both of them were evil. It doesn't, it doesn't say why, although that guy is mentioned four times in the Bible as being Nebuchadnezzar's son. His son was Belshazzar, who is mentioned in Daniel 5, 7, and 8 as the king over Babylon. There's a lot of history here that disagrees with each other, a lot of historians, but the Bible only tells us of those three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and his son's son, and then Cyrus, the Persian, taking over Babylon. They only mention those, the Bible only mentions those three. There are lots of others during that little time period of about 50 years that historians recognize as being kings in there. Some of them, however, are proven to have ruled in absentia from other kingdoms. Some of them were identified in the Bible by name as being princes, but then another place in the Bible it says that they were, they were kings that this king was over. So, so not to confuse the matter, but we just believe the Bible when history conflicts with it. And Amen. history identifies the three that are important, and that's the three we go with. Right. Cyrus approaches Babylon after a couple of battles outside north of the city, where the army quickly retreated into the city walls. By some accounts, Babylon was four or five times the, the size of London, where London is today. Four or five times that size. It had at least double walls between 75 and 300 feet high, and they were wide enough for a chariot of four horses to turn around on. Huge city. The city was built on both sides of the Euphrates River, and it had large bridges going over the middle, and the wall went all the way around encircling it all. 
There were over a hundred brass and iron gates ringed around the city going out, and there were two of such gates at the entrance of the river to the city and the exit of the river going out of the city. And those particular gates had bars that went all the way down into the water to the bottom of the riverbed. That would become important later. All the historians agree on that. There were streets inside uh, that, that led at right angles. Uh, they had the hanging gardens of Babylon there. They were just astronomically huge. They could withstand a siege of 20 years, it said, the city of Babylon. Cyrus tried it for two years. He sieged the city and couldn't get anywhere with it. And he finally had this great idea. He spent an entire summer after sieging it for two years, digging a canal outward, going up upriver, the Refrigerator River, digging a canal into the low-lying basin area north and east of Babylon. And he placed his armies, part of his army at the entrance of the city where the river went into the city, and part of his army where it came out. And a specific night, at the agreed-upon time, he broke the little dam, and the river was the river Euphrates, most of it, was diverted into this low-lying basin area away from the city. And so, unbeknownst to all the, po- the people inside the city, who were observing a very important religious festival at the time, the river level dropped down, and in some places went completely dry. Um... Little to Cyrus's surprise, when he got to the gates, he recognized that they had been left open. So in the fervor and excitement of celebrating the religious holiday, somebody had left the gates open. So he walked in in the middle of the night. Actually, as Darius, his uncle, led the armies in after Cyrus drug the canals. They marched under the, under the wall through the gates and took the entire city and killed Belshazzar the king. And that is uh, recorded in great detail in Daniel 5 with the handwriting on the wall. So that's the night he was killed. Hardly any blood was shed that night, but he captured the most magnificent, most powerful, most wealthiest city uh, that the world knew about at the time without any bloodshed. Hardly any. Now listen to God boasting of his ability to describe these details over 150 years before they occurred. Matthew Eason, will you please read those few verses? These are the last few verses of Isaiah 44, and you're welcome to turn there and follow along. Isaiah 44, 24 through um, verse 6 of the next chapter. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, that maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish, that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers, that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. 
I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Thank you. Any questions? <laughs> Any questions? But it gets better. It gets better. Let me read two other quick verses from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 46:11, referring to Cyrus, says, Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, referring to Cyrus. Another verse from Isaiah 41, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treadeth clay. So in one place, he's prophesied as coming from the east, i.e. the ram pushed westward and northward and southward, so he must have been coming from the east, right? But in another place, he's prophesied as coming from the north. So which is it, north or east? The answer is yes. Because where Babylon is, the Media Empire is directly north, and the Persian Empire is directly east. And the way he approached the city was from the east, then circled to the north and came straight down. So yes, both of the, both of those countries, the kings, both came from the north and from the east upon Babylon. Jeremiah. There's Jeremiah 50 and 51. I'm just going to read these phrases, these details very quickly. And you can read them at your leisure, but they're awesome. Out of the north. An assembly of great nations from the north. These are all prophecies about the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 50 and 51. Thou wast not aware. A drought is upon her waters, and they shall be dried up. This is the burden of Babylon prophesied by Jeremiah. The mighty men of Babylon have forborne to fight. They have remained in their holds. Their might hath failed. They have burned her dwelling places. Her bars are broken. One post shall run to meet another and one messenger to meet another to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken at one end and the passages are stopped and the reeds they have burnt with fire and the men of war are affrighted. These are all prophecies. People from the north, a great nation and many kings. The king of Babylon hath heard the report of them and his hands waxed feeble. Guess this really sounds like Daniel 5. His hands waxed feeble, anguish took hold of him, and pangs as a woman in travail. Behold, he, that is Cyrus, shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan unto the habitation of the strong. Out of the riverbeds he came up into the city. Prepare against her the nations with the kings of the Medes, captains and rulers. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. All these things are, are prophecies. How is the praise of the whole earth surprised? How is Babylon become an astonishment among the nations? The nations shall not flow together any more unto him. Yea, the wall of Babylon shall fall. I will make drunk her princes, wise men, captains, rulers, and mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep. These are just a few of the prophecies. I'll stop there. Much more can be said. But I want to build up your faith. Uh, in God's ability to foretell the future and delight in the God that we serve that not only can foretell the future, but declare the future and make it come to pass as he, as, as he stated that it would. Uh, one last thing about Cyrus that was prophesied is that he would tell the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, which is decidedly uncharacteristic of, uh, of pagan kings. But he, just, he decided he was going to do that, and, and tradition has it that, the, uh, that one of the Jews showed him, maybe one of the rabbis or priests, showed him the prophecy in Scripture, and that's what motivated him to go ahead and fulfill his destiny, as it were. Stephen, will you read his decree for them to go back and, and uh, rebuild Jerusalem? Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, 
The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. He even paid for it and gave them timber to build it with. Are there any prophecies left for you? I'll read one verse that uh, our brother Roland read uh, very briefly on Sunday. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You have been ordained to do good works. So let's fulfill our destiny and go do them. Thank you. I am in a difficult spot. I had a prom. I, I I had a phone call today, and promised we would be done by eight o'clock since this is the first week of school for everyone. Very much appreciate the three men we've heard so far tonight. I was very much looking forward to our fourth brother, but I know he's a good brother, and we'll just look forward to the next opportunity we can have. To hear what you've got. You can probably add to it and make it even better. The Lord is good to us. It's been said before that it's one thing to be in a congregation where you have a minister who is dedicated and who is able to provide week in and week out sustenance for the congregation and provide things that we need from God's word. That's a blessing in and of itself. And we pray tonight, and please keep praying, that the Lord would bless our brother to be strengthened so that he's able to jump right back into it uh, with strength and vigor and zeal, and we can be blessed by those results. It's another blessing, another level of blessing, when you have a congregation where there are other men who can step forward and can provide something for the nourishment of our souls even in the absence of our good brother. Both, both are blessings from God. And I'm very thankful to be in a congregation where we have that ability, where we have that blessing from the Lord. If you would join me all in standing as we ask the Lord's blessing in our parting. Our great Father, we're so very thankful for your goodness and kindness once more to us in what we've heard this night. Lord, we've heard things practical to challenge us on whether we have idols in our hearts and lives that are worse than the idols of stone, for we know better. We've had an encouragement, Lord, to be like a brother that was named in Scripture, and to go about our task to be godly men and women so that you will be pleased to name us in one, at some coming date, Lord, as your child, as your good child, obedient child. And, Father, we've had our faith strengthened of hearing about who you declared your servant Cyrus to be and how you did this well over a hundred years before he even came on the scene, your word predicted him by name 
and all down to the details of how he would enter the city of Babylon, of how the effect he would have on the king that he overthrew. Father, we're so very thankful for these blessings this night. And Lord, just ask that you would watch safe us as we travel home, that we might have safe journeys, that we might be able, if you tarry your coming, Lord, to come back again Sunday to fellowship one with another, to rejoice in our faith and to praise and glorify you. Father, hear us. Dismiss us now with your blessing. For we ask these things in Jesus' most glorious name. Amen. Amen. Do you want to speak?